Good evening, heroes. And welcome to First Watch. I'm Kat Cool. And I'm James D'Amato. And that's, that's the it. entire introduction. One day we'll be smooth about it. No, we won't. I refuse. Uh, so, I think it's time to start things off with a scrying by. Scrying by. Okay, Kat, let's scrying on your life. How you been doing? What you been doing? I, this month more than most months, have been pretty ill. Yeah, you have. Uh, I've been sick twice because first, uh, both times my husband got sick to start and mm-hmm. then i followed along because that just seemed like a fun idea yeah that's what husbands do if you're out there considering getting a husband just you know realize they're disease factories yeah so he just had a cold which was um frustrating i get the it's so annoying to have a cold yeah because there's not a ton you can do about it you just kind of Blah. Exactly. And then, uh, the second time, I got the flu. Yeah, you got the legit flu. The I've legit only, flu. I've only had the flu once before in my life. Wow, good for you. I've had the flu frequently. I, I'm also someone who's had pneumonia twice. But uh, this is your first time actually using Tamiflu, right? Yes. I went to the hospital and got Tamiflu, which it's, uh, for those who don't know, it, you get like a 48-hour window if you start displaying symptoms of the flu, mm-hmm. that you can start using this thing called Tamiflu. I'm sure there are other variants yeah. too. And and for our, you know, uh, poor young millennial friends, you can pick this up at urgent care clinics. Uh, you can go in. It's like a 30 or 20 minute test to see if you have the flu. They yeah. just swab you and test that sample. And if you have the flu, they can give you Tamiflu. And Tamiflu, as Kat was about to explain. Uh, it basically shuts down continued production of the virus and stuff. So it just shortens the length of the time that you're displaying symptoms and dealing and with lessens the severity too yes by a huge amount i wasn't expecting it to be as successful as it was um because like it turns out the cold was more frustrating because it like the symptoms continued on longer whereas mm-hmm. now i just I, I keep getting migraines but that's kind of expected of me and i'm kind of stuffy but i'm not like dripping mucus or anything and i no longer have a fever i'm, I'm doing great yeah yeah i i i Whenever Kat is facing a health crisis, I am always advocating for medical intervention. And Kat is, uh, I believe the personality type that I'd like to refer to is a tough cookie. <laughs> Kat <laughs> defines herself a lot of the time on being tough and getting through things. Oh, no, uh, that's not fair. Uh, it's, it's apt. Oh. This is an apt description. I just like being autonomous. Yeah. So, it, like, there are very few circumstances where she will consider, uh, you know, using any kind of medical intervention. And for things like the cold, like, you probably don't need to go to the doctor about a cold. But for things like the flu, not only can you, you should, because who wants to deal with the goddamn flu? It's the worst. Yeah. And part of the reason I went is because I had a I had a week this week. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, our good buddy Jim McClure, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Shugenja currently sleeping in the tent behind us. Yeah, Jim's in town. Uh, he's in town. So, uh, last night we recorded Evil Campaign and I really wanted to be able to do that. We are supposed to record, uh, just standard old campaign the night before, but I figured that I'd give myself that extra night to recover yeah. from the flu. But like flu symptoms started up over the weekend and I'm doing well now. And, yeah. uh, that's, that's huge. So if you guys get the flu, go get Tamiflu. Yeah. If you're friends with James and he tells you to go to a doctor, maybe go to a doctor. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> that brings me to uh, another thing that's been up with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm we're about I'm about to launch 
evil campaign. So yeah. I've been kind of elbows deep in that whole world. Uh, it's really exciting. So those who listen to campaign but don't hang out on any social media stuff or anything, what the deal with evil campaign is that it's, um, uh, James, Jim McClure, Tyler Davis, and myself playing Sinox, Blue, Zero, and Ava. Well, you're forgetting the most important character of Evil Campaign, Jacinto Reth. Oh, my God. We're not talking about Jacinto Reth. I.I. operative Jacinto Reth. Uh, but he's an NPC. I was talking about the PCs, the player uh, characters. Well, I, like, I mean, he thinks of himself as a player character. And it jumps around uh, showing you different – showing – what that party's doing while the campaign crew is doing stuff before the murder ball during yeah after. this is a prequel to campaign the first one is yeah um and then it'll kind of run concurrent with uh stuff so you get to see what the villains are up to during that time the ways that they interact as a party the times that they squabble all of that stuff uh it's a really fun narrative thing to play with and i'm having a lot of fun putting it all together they're going to be once a month uh releases of about an hour and a half and this is uh, something that we have thanks to our Patreon backers. Yes. It was a milestone that was reached much faster than we anticipated, like when we hadn't even in our heads cast the whole evil party yet. Yeah, not and at all. Part we of the reason that it got held back is we just did not know who was going to play Blue for a while. We held auditions, and while I liked every performer that went up in the audition, like it, it, it just wasn't the right fit. Yeah. And then, you know, Jim joined the network, and uh, it turned out that he was more able to come up here and play with us than we thought and jim is ideal and jim is jim is very perfect for blue absolutely Um, so uh i'm really i'm really psyched about that that i think it's gonna be a fun it's been a fun project i'm i'm looking forward to everybody getting to see the fruits of it Mm -hmm. um and then uh anything else that i have been up to oh digimon try released another episode i don't know if i i've probably talked about digimon try uh, the quick rundown on Digimon Try is that is a return to form in that it's the original Digidestin kids. Yes, just in high school. Getting to see their lives continue. Um, and it's, they're releasing them like every three months or so. They release a movie, but in the form of four episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just released the second burst of those. And it was focusing on Mimi and Joe, who are like, Two, Cat, two of Kat's favorite Two of my characters. favorites. My favorites are Izzy, Mimi, and Joe. So um, it was pretty cool. I'm still all jazzed about it. Yeah. Um, if you text Kat, then you know that she's jazzed about it. Yeah. I'm sorry, everyone <laughs> who texts me. Well, Mel was like wondering one night, why is your phone constantly <laughs> oh buzzing? And I'm, I'm like, sorry. Kat's talking to me about Digimon. <laughs> I'm sorry. There should be an option to have... Uh, silenced stuff on phones for just specific people. No, because if you had that option, it would be impossible to contact you. All phones should mandatory make a noise for every single thing that happens. That's terrible. I hate it. No. Okay, what's going on with you? Okay, well, a couple of things. I mean, the biggest thing that's happening in my life right now is I am preparing for NPC to Kickstarter. Our Kickstarter! Um, I have gotten Mel, my girlfriend, uh, to help organize it. Uh, so Kat, while well, she has been bedridden and diseased. Which uh, is like, again, yeah, real sick, bedridden sick. Fevers aren't the best. Fevers are not good. And, like, that's on top of all the other, like, normal day-to-day illnesses that can happen with you. So, yeah. like... Well, Kat has been basically out of commission. I've brought Mel in to help uh, focus some of the more organizational aspects of getting this Kickstarter off the ground. Um, so we have gone through things like, okay, what 
are the backer levels? What, what, what can we reasonably do? We've broken down, uh, the cost analysis of the Kickstarter and we're thinking through things like stretch goals and social goals and getting all of the copy written and squared away. Uh, one thing that we're probably going to do, which, uh, you know, uh, first watch listeners can peek behind the curtain a little bit is we're probably going to be writing some of the updates for the kickstarter before the kickstarter actually launches and these might even be the updates that will you will get after the kickstarter um one of the things that i have learned in backing a lot of kickstarters and watching a lot of kickstarters is what people want to know more than anything else is that you are still there and doing stuff because i think the scariest thing that can happen to you with a kickstarter is the person uh, running the project drops off the face of the earth and you don't know why um that's where people start to get angry and like you know reasonably so because uh there's some element of trust involved in a kickstarter relationship so uh, that's one of the logistical aspects that we're dealing with. After the Kickstarter is over, I am going to make publicly available like all of the material that uh, we have concerning the Kickstarter and what led up to it and different decisions that we made because I think it's a fascinating process. Um, and even though I've read a ton of Kickstarter guides, I still feel like I don't know anything about it. And it's one of those things where... <sighs> People keep saying, oh, man, you don't know what you're getting into. And it's like, well, then tell me what I'm getting yeah, into. Stop making it a nebulous threat because that's not helpful for anybody involved. But uh, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I don't think it'll surprise anyone uh, when I say I enjoy thinking about projects that involve lots of people uh, and doing a particular type of performance and creating a different uh, like a particular type of art uh that's that's my jam so i've really enjoyed the kickstarter i will say it is going slower than i want but that's everything in my life um and i the other big thing is i cut up on gunner creek court recently oh that's right you did yeah uh for those who don't know gunner creek court is a comic by tom 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 seidel is it siddle seidel fine tom seiduck Correct. Uh, S-I-D-D-E-L-L. Um, it's a webcomic about uh, two girls in a sort of magic slash sci-fi boarding school. That's interesting that you consider it about two girls. That's like, Cat's a huge part, but I've always considered it really Annie's story. I Cat's story is really important. Like, No, it totally really is, important. but so is Renard's. Yeah, it's true, but... You know, Renard wasn't in it for half of the book. It's and- about protagonist Antimony Carver and deuteragonist Cat, whatever Cat's last name is. Uh oh my God! Don't do this to me. I know this name, N- Nolan. Yeah, there Cat you go. Cat Nolan. Yeah. Cool. So it's it starts out as a really fun, cute Harry Potter esque uh, world building exercise, and actually very much like Harry Potter arcs into a more complicated plot and a lot of the things that you saw as immediately like innocent and like surface level just like for for flash and jazz are actually part of a much larger story going on um and it's a great story all the characters are really down to earth and it's very driven by uh the characters and their interaction and the art on top of it is Gorgeous. Phenomenal. I think it's that beautiful. It started when we were, I think, freshmen in college. Yeah. And the art was like 
fun then, uh, but it has, oh my God, yeah. has Tom gotten good. Yeah, he is really, really matured into a fantastic artist, and he hasn't lost the whimsical style that he started off with, uh, which I think is really great and really important. I I just love it. It's comes out as like these hardback trade books uh through Archaea Press. Through Archaea Press. And y- if you know Archaea, they put out beautiful trade copies mouse of books. Guard. Yeah, they do mouse guard. Um I think it's up to volume 5 right now. If you are someone who likes to read like a physical book, it's definitely worth the investment. I think it's like $30 a volume. They are beautiful volumes and the comic is fantastic. I wholeheartedly would recommend just diving right in or you can read it for free online. Also, uh, for those listeners who have children, uh, that's I used to work at a comic shop and it is one of the main books that I would recommend for the preteen age group. Yeah. That's, and it's it, ideal. And it matures with the reader too. Like uh, it, it starts getting more complex incrementally and uh, it's just really good and really fascinating and if you are at all a fan of the mysterious magical boarding school genre uh which you should be it is definitely one to pick up with added technological mysteries as well it's really fun it explores that miyazaki dynamic it is so miyazaki Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's so miyazaki it's so good it's very good yeah so and if you're a fan of gunner creek court uh feel free to tweet at me about it i had a lot of heated conversations uh, about Gunner Creek Court it complaining about Annie's father. Yeah, it was really weird to uh, to be your friend during this because I have always been more or less current with Gunner Creek. I just keep <laughs> up with it and read it as it comes out every week. So it comes out two pages a week, yep. right? Um, so that's a real slow burn for the sort of beautiful long form story they're telling. Right. Um, so things that have taken years for me happen in the space of a week for you. And it was just like really bizarre to hear you go from thing that meant a lot to me to two hours later, other thing that meant a lot to me. Yeah. And you just got it all in a day and a half. I mean, and like, that's how I want to absorb this story. Yeah. I am so happy that Tom, the, the creator of this comic is now doing it full time. Yes. Like, that's his only job. And it's something that happened like in the middle of him doing the comic. And there was a period there where he was flirting with the idea of upping his release schedule. And he ultimately decided against doing that. And I think, uh, that is, that is to the credit of this comic. It has made the comic better because he has taken the time and invested it in developing his art style. As much as I want there to be more of the story right now, I am very, very happy with uh, the story as it's turned out. I do wish I could consume it more ravenously, but sure. you know, that's life. That's life. Um, Cool. So shall we move on to buys? Yeah, let's move on to buy. Okay, we'll start with the ones that are kind of easy to get out of the way. Uh, recently, I bought some crop tops. They're really cute. <laughs> uh, okay. What are on those crop tops, Kat? Okay, one has a succubus on it, nice. and it says succubus in katakana, so that's cute. And then the other one has a mischievous, which is the best Pokemon. So that's also really good. If you are someone who can wear a crop top, which is all of you, all of you out there listening right now, <laughs> quick hen, you have the option of wearing crop tops. Go for it. It's fun. Uh, you do not have the abs for a crop top, cat. Well, you know what they make? They make high-waisted jeans. But also, who says anybody needs abs? That's boring. Everyone, okay, first of all, 
it would not be boring if everyone had abs. (laughs) I think 100% of the people in the audience listening, like given the option of abs, they would probably opt to have abs. Sure, sure. Well, abs are so much less important to me than all of the physical abilities that come with abs. I mean, that that is true. It's just abs are hilarious and great. (laughs) They're great. Uh, that's a good point. Um, but I don't know. Part of it for me is like a body positivity thing that I can wear crop tops and look cute and feel good, even though I am chubbier than I once was. I no. mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really struggle with certain body image issues. Uh, and like, I think when I was really young, uh, I got a Michael Jordan shirt that was, oh God, what was it? the the sleeveless tee yeah. thing and i felt so uncomfortable in it just in a tank top yeah tank top that's it yeah so i i felt so uncomfortable in it and so aware of my body and the way the shirt was hanging from my body sure well, well but that's also you're allowed to i don't know part of bo- body positivity to me is realizing that it's also okay to not like showing different parts of your body you know that it's the you should just be allowed to right right yeah but what I'm saying yeah. is that there there are certain things, certain items of clothing that I just don't feel good and comfortable wearing. Right. Um, and, and crop tops would definitely fall into that category. Okay. Well, I quite like them. <laughs> um, but I also, I'm a big fan of high-waisted pants, shorts, and jeans. I think they look really cute depending. that They have a kind of a pinup quality to them that I think is just... Um, so that combines really well with crop top because then it's like not a lot of skin that shows, you know, it's just the occasional sliver and it's cute and flirty and fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I felt good, good about that because I've been intimidated of them from them with them in the past and mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, fuck it. This is what I look like. Right. Um, and then, uh, the other easy thing to talk about is I've recently realized that I am my mother. Uh, let me clarify. Um, <laughs> my mom, uh, frivolously loves clothing and shoes and bags and uh i've never seen her leave the house without a full face of makeup and i realized recently that i have become that when i was putting on lipstick to edit campaign that's awesome that's (laughs) awesome though that's fucking great that's how makeup should be yeah i really just like makeup a lot um and i realize how frequently i use specifically lipstick even if i don't do the rest of my my makeup i'll probably put on lipstick every day so i got a 20 pack of different lip liners because some were smudging uh some some of my darker colors were smudging more than i wanted them to be and guys i you know it's it's one that I don't think of often. I don't know if you do, but lip liner is so good. It just keeps everything secure, and then for hours after, that nothing's out of place. Uh, I highly recommend it. I got to go on a tangent about this makeup thing. Okay. Because that's one of the things that annoyed me most about Antimone's father uh. in Gunner Craig Court. <laughs> makeup is a huge part of how Antimone sees herself and how she likes to see herself. She wears makeup that was her mother's. Yeah, um, and she started when she was like 10. Really, really young. Um, it's always a big story beat whenever any character in the narrative criticizes her makeup and the fact that she's wearing it. And I get very, very defensive about that because Annie Antimone would be wearing that makeup regardless of the situation if it was just her alone she would wear that because that's how she feels like herself yeah and it deeply frustrates me when anybody makes any uh implication that makeup is for other people yeah or should be for other people it annoys the fuck out of me because it's war paint 
It's yeah. war paint. Well, for some people, for some people, they they do use it for you know that like and, and the, that's, that's super valid too. That's it's totally just, valid. Any approach to makeup is valid. It's super weird that it's a gendered thing that that's supposed to mean something in our society instead of colors that you put on your face. Yeah. And as someone with like colored hair and you know that <laughs> with ridiculous nonsense, I like putting colors on my face. Re- someone with ridiculous nonsense is how I would describe Cat Cool. I have how many pairs of glasses? I have like eight pairs of glasses you have too many pairs of glasses (laughs) no i don't have enough (laughs) uh cool so those were the two little fun easy things to to discuss then let's get into the serious one pokemon recently turned 20 pokemon turned 20 they announced the the new game that they're going to be putting out next year which is uh sun and moon I will be buying Moon and James will be buying Sun in case just putting that yeah. to bed. I so know you are all worried. Get your fan fictions ready. <laughs> um, uh, but they also released, re-released uh, Red, Blue, and Yellow as a part of the Nint- Nintendo shop because um, all of the other versions of the game, you can put your Pokemon from them up into this World Bank nebulous thing. So yeah, you can take your Pokemon from one game and put them and into put another them into game. another. Um, You've always been able to do that with Pokemon, but it's never been easy. And it hasn't. They were never able to find a way to do it with the original red, blue, yellow cartridges right. that went into the original Game yeah, Boy. Yeah, even if you went all the way up, like I think there's a cutoff at Game Boy Advance where it couldn't make the it just couldn't. jump over to dual screen. So their solution is to re-release the exact games with no updates at all into the Nintendo eShop. So Does this many mean people Missingo is a part of this game. Uh, that I don't quite remember, but I know that like the Mew cheat works. You know that it's the a lot of I the... had no idea that that was a cheat when I was playing. Oh. I would have done that with my game. Oh, I'm I going known. to when I'm there. But uh, yeah, so I've been uh, so I got Red, which is the first Pokemon game I ever played, and I've been mm-hmm. playing that, and it is, God, it's so much fun. That's um, if you were one of the generation that first started on Red and Blue, things that you probably don't remember if you aren't playing it again right now is that it takes until halfway through that game for you to get a bike and. Or anything like that. So it is so slow. It's unbelievably slow. I have been in Mount Moon for a week. (laughs) Um, The part of that is because I play to lull myself to sleep, and it's such a boring and slow-paced game that it effectively lulls me to sleep. Um, Which It's exactly what I needed, but it's just like... And I think that some people find it frustrating how slow it is, but for Mm me, uh, it's it's really like cathartic and and lets me zen out and uh, accomplishes everything that it needs to. So I am having a blast, and if you are one of the people doing that, I'd love to Pokemon battle after we uh, all get past the Elite Four. That would be great. Yeah, and I guess my buy, because big surprise... I bought games. My buy also ties into Pokemon. I just bought this very day Pokemon Tournament. I've been very excited about Pokemon Tournament. I am a huge fan of fighting games. I am not good at them in the meta sense, uh, so I stay away from most fighting game fandom style games. The only one that I kind of touch is Smash Brothers because... Uh, the the playing field uh, for a lot of people is a lot more even. Once you get up into the ridiculous nonsense, then it's ungraspable. But like, I can't play Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat, uh, so it's the fighting game media that I can consume is very 
narrow. I do watch YouTube videos about people who are good at fighting games, and that's always fascinating to me. But uh, Pokemon Tournament is just a you know 2D-style fighter that involves Pokemon. Uh, I played one round of it. I'm liking it so far. I picked a Charizard because I like Charizard. Is Charizard your favorite of the original 150? Uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to say. I don't think there is any Pokemon that really means anything to me, but the Charmander evolution tree. Um, that's insane. My favorite of the original 150 is Nido King. I mean, yeah, that's a weird opinion that you have. And that's it's interesting. A, it's a good opinion. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with the game. You can customize your trainer, which is something that both Kat yeah. and I are pretty deeply bonding over. James has a pink boa and a pink vest. I do. I do. Uh, there is a purple vest that you can get. Well, obviously you'll be moving to That's, that. Yeah. I'm going to be moving into that. Once you can afford it. I'm probably going to buy the hearts and feathers for myself. Are as you well. going to get a purple boa or to keep the pink one? Oh, I'm going to keep the pink one. It looks good. Cause yeah, you want that contrast. You don't want to look like JPC. That's, <laughs> uh, who just is like a power ranger in case of anyone forgot clothes, power ranger has never heard us discuss this before yeah um uh if you were in pokemon mm-hmm. what would you dress in like what would what would your oh <sighs> that's impossible to say i don't think it is i feel like i know exactly what i'd dress i as. don't think in those terms so it's impossible for me to say what are you <laughs> the poke like pokemon fashion is way too japanese for me like I wear jeans and a t-shirt every day because I don't really think about fashion that much. I get nice jackets because I like the way jackets look. I have a pretty good collection of like nice jackets and whatnot. But apart from that, I'm not really into any other aspect of clothing. I guess suits. I have very nice suits and very nice dress shirts, but now there are so few occasions for me to wear them. It's a shame. Uh, People should hire us to host their award shows and game shows and variety shows because i think we'd be very good at it we just need to create the context within gaming to allow people to dress up if they want we need to provide them with that context yeah that's it's it's true but also hire james and i to host those things because we'd be really good at it and he'd look great in a white tux uh what i'm gonna say actually Mm -hmm. i'm gonna narrow that even more uh hire cat and i Oh, okay. That's good. (laughs) And you meant the opposite of uh, narrow. You meant like branch that back out. I made I made the pitch much shorter. Just hire us. Hire us. Hashtag hireable. We look really good in Texas. Hire us. We look really good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Did you buy anything else? Um, no. I mean, yes, but but nothing like that's the most uh, pressing thing on my mind. I haven't had other burning things that I uh, need to talk about. I guess I got Spectacular Spider-Man on Blu-ray. Love Spectacular Spider-Man. I'm really excited about it because it means that I can finally, once you show it to the people you need to show it to, I can show it to the people I need to show it to because it hasn't been on a streaming service and it was a wonderful show. I mean, it has been on Netflix, but is no longer on Netflix. Right. Um, and it also means that that theme song is back in my life, which oh, oh I forgot. Fa- it's oh the best theme song. Oh, we should also go back to a thing that we should have talked about when we were scrying. Uh, Young Justice. Um, Young Justice, yeah. So Young Justice is on Netflix. Young Justice is a DC show uh, about yeah, more or less the original Teen Titans crew, and well, I guess Wonder Girl's not there. God, who's on the team? Um, it is Robin, Superboy, Miss Martian, Aqualad, uh, Speedy. 
Or not Speedy. Speedy and well, Speedy's there and but, Kid but, Flash. But he's not on the team. You're right. Speedy's not on the team. Speedy, Speedy Kid Flash, and uh, what do they call her? Not Arrowette. Um, oh, uh, Artemis. Artemis. Um, teen teen heroes doing teen hero stuff. It was exceptionally well done. Um, they have it up on Netflix right now that there are only two seasons. Um, but Netflix is going through this thing where I'm pretty sure they're going to do it anyway. But it really feels like we have a third season that's uh, that's in the workings. That's a possibility. And they've uh, people have been doing a stream Young Justice campaign. Um, so well, like, it is actually so the. There's we've been There's trying to bring it to Netflix. Sure. There have been like ten hashtags, mm-hmm. um, but the it just disappeared from my phone. Okay, okay. Uh, so because we haven't been able to commit to a hashtag, Netflix has not been able to really count the interest because it's spread out against so many people using conflicting hashtags. The one that they want us to use is keep binging YJ. Uh, so if you want to help with that, if you really liked that show, please tweet out in that hashtag. If you don't know if you like that show, go to Netflix right now and watch it all. I highly recommend it. It was fantastic. It's good. Uh, don't listen to Chris Sims. There are a couple of situations where Chris doesn't know what that criff he's talking he about. He doesn't like Young Justice? He cannot get into it or he, he hasn't gotten into it. I suspect it is a Chris thing yeah. where other people like it. And he just doesn't. Well, he also, I don't know. He likes things that are, are very funny and like fun Justice and light. Super funny. It's funny, but it's grounded in really, really serious storytelling. I mean, that is true. It is very serious and it does take itself too seriously in some moments. So like Chris Sims loved batman brave and the bold which was a delight uh, i was wonderful series. he hasn't watched and doesn't isn't going to watch uh the clone wars cartoon i feel that young justice is closer to the clone wars cartoon mm-hmm. um so that's kind of if the your tastes if you're a cartoon watcher that it falls somewhere on that spectrum now you know roughly where young justice is yeah uh it, it's it's very good it's good it's not steven universe but it should have another what season could be yeah <laughs> Um, cool. Man. So I think that's our scrying by. That's our scrying by. Woohoo. So, uh, let's move on to, uh, knowledge probably. Yup. And for that one, we have a question. So let's move on to knowledges. And first up is knowledge world. This question. Wouldn't com- that be like planes? Knowledge planes. There yes. we go. Knowledge sure. the planes. Knowledge the planes. And this also ties into, uh, the new segment that we have, which is commune. Um, oh, because this is a question. Is it three questions? It's one question. Okay, next time, guys, you have to ask no. three. Nope. <sighs> no. It's so much better. It's so much worse. No, but the deal it's with exclusively commune, worse. The way that the spell works is that it's three questions. I, I don't care. It's three bad for podcasting. yes or no questions. No, you are not good at coming up with segments. <laughs> <laughs> We're bad at that. Well, I'm good at knowing about <laughs> spells, and that's how commune works. As I said, uh, we're adding commune to the first watch. I don't know. Thing of things that first watch does. Occasionally, first watch will take a question. Yeah, we'll, we'll take fan questions. Um, and that will be added to the Patreon site soon. But right now we're working back through a backlog of old critical success questions that I cannot answer because I still have a day job. So this one comes to us from Geraldo and says, 
I recently came up with an original setting that I'd like to run my players through. I've put quite a bit of lore in various, into various factions, important characters, monsters, gods, etc. in the world. However, I'm not sure how to introduce my players into this setting. I don't want to just drop a wall of text on them during our first playthrough or whenever they encounter something new. But I also don't want them to walk around blindfolded, if you will. How do I introduce a player to my original setting? Interesting. So it isn't a problem of, uh, like, writing a setting into a book or anything. It's at a very individual homebrewy level. Uh, although I do think this is something that people who design settings and put them into books need to know as well. Sure. This is a valuable skill to get people to care about the thing that you're doing. You need to know how to shape your information in order to welcome them into your world instead of make them feel out of place and underinformed. Right. Uh, so let's talk about this. The point that I brought up when this question first came up, when we decided to answer it before the show, was I wanted to talk about visitation fantasy. Uh, the visitation fantasy is one of the original forms of fantasy storytelling. Uh, a lot of the foundational fiction around fantasy cropped up out of the idea of someone from the modern world uh, getting put into a fantastical world and them sort of being introduced to the way that world works along with the reader. It is a very natural and organic way to introduce new concepts to people. So uh, that's something like I think one of the very first instances is uh, Yankee and King Arthur's Court. And then if we look at John Carter from Mars, that is another visitation fantasy. Narnia. Narnia. Yeah, big ones. Uh, so it's the way of dropping a perspective character whose only perspective is i only know the way the world operates now i need to learn how this magical world operates and slowly become a part of it uh so i i don't think obviously for role-playing settings you're not going to yankee and king arthur's court your party all the time like that's that's crazy because you're eventually you want these characters to be built in your world however the formula that these stories follow uh i think is the perfect formula for introducing large amounts of uh world building information to people a little bit at a time sure uh so it starts out with a very narrowed scope. Uh, you're not immediately aware of all the world's problems. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the thing, like, if you think of your day-to-day -day life, uh, you probably know really well the corners of your city that you visit and uh, your job. And that's pretty much it. Like, uh, bits of larger information filter into our lives all the time, but we really only have a firm grasp on the things that are immediately important to us. Uh if you look at The Hobbit, uh, that's very much a visitation fantasy because uh, Agree. Bilbo Baggins and Frodo Baggins are hobbits. And they started off in Hobbiton and all they know really is Hobbiton life. Uh, and then they get introduced to all of Middle Earth and they have to step out of that life that they had. And they're already a part of the setting to begin with. So it's it's they don't bring the baggage of the real world to things as many visitation fantasies do. So, yeah, and, and this is why there is level progression in a lot of uh, fantasy role playing, because it allows people to start at a small place and sort of take on more information and more power as the story stretches out in front of them. Uh, so a great way is to look at something that people can immediately identify aspects of day to day life with, because 
if you have a big, beautiful, living, breathing world, uh, there are a lot of different niches in that world that people fill that should be very similar to the day-to-day lives in our world. Like, you know, merchants is just retail jobs. Uh, if farmers are, well, I guess there aren't many farmers these days, but farmers used to be a very normal thing. Uh, there are, at like university life, if somebody starts off at a wizarding school, regardless of whether or not it's a wizarding school, we know what it's like to go to school uh, because we live in a society where a lot of people have gone to school. So I, I'd say start your characters from a level one position, meaning they have the skills that they need to start adventuring, but they haven't started adventuring. Yet. Because their world is vast and their perspective is small. Mm-hmm. Um that's interesting. So the I have lots of thoughts on this, but I want to grab one more thing from you before we get into it. Of course. It. Um, so their other concern, though, is so like you, like Inway and Hobbit, have left the have left Hobbiton and your university and are adventuring. Mm-hmm. You get to a new town. How do you avoid exposition dumps when we ask for knowledge checks on things? And you know, like the how do you make that more gradual so that they don't get hit? with uh, a lot of exposition anytime they learn something new. So my experience has been that most players actually don't make those knowledge checks. You do because that interests you and you actually want that information. So if players are entering a town making a ton of knowledge checks, uh, the player who's doing that is asking you to be expository for them. And that's the situation where you do it. Otherwise, going back to my invisible levers scenario is I I think what you need to do is put an immediate and simple problem in front of them that has larger consequences and more more uh, narrative weight behind it. Uh, So if they're starting off in a village, there's something killing sheep and they have to stop that thing from killing sheep. Uh, so like that's like okay there's a monster we're familiar with the scenario uh from everything that we've ever done and then they can go off into your spooky storybook woods uh where they learn okay there's a spooky storybook woods in this world and that's the way monsters operate and this is where they're coming from they're being generated in this wood and coming out to the town and we have to appease the story in order to stop the slaughter of livestock so By putting that very simple quest in front of them that they already know how to do, you have empowered them to start slowly learning about different things. Sure, sure, sure. Cool. I I have a few uh, slightly differing opinions. Of course. There's more than one way to do things. Uh, I think that's a great way to do things, but I I think that it's still – that gives you the opportunity to have your players assume a lot still. And uh, something that kind of annoys me when I have a like a really rich setting is when people just one to one think of it as traditional fantasy that's like matches up against European medieval nonsense. You know, that's mm-hmm. uh, I, I just don't like it. So like um, <laughs> when I am uh, dealing with that sort of thing, there are so many easy, small show don't don't tell tricks to continually remind your party that it isn't a one-to-one matchup with traditional medieval fantasy. Right. For example, those don't have to be sheep. Um, they can be some <laughs> other animal that... Uh, yes, my my specifics aside. <laughs> no, no. I, I think that that's actually hugely important. That's mm-hmm. you, you put forth a thing with sheep, which 
has a lot of baggage attached to it. Um, people know what shepherds are. They know what sheep are. They know like shearing festivals. You assume a bunch about a town that has a lot of sheep. Mm-hmm. But if you don't say sheep, if you say fluffnarfs, then we don't know what fluffnarfs are and They're we need sheep. to learn about them. They might just be sheep, but That's they could. That's a good name for sheep, Dad. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, they could be something else. Uh, and just uh, um, othering it like that removes that comfort level of assumption. Um, other ways that I think uh, you can kind of easily do this, especially if you are doing something like a setting book, art is hugely instrumental to to shaping how I think about the world and how different cultures have come together. Um, a show that does this really well, Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, man, definitely. Uh, just looking from the start, because Aang is from a closed perspective and is slowly learning about the world as we grow uh, with, with things. Um, but as they go from place to place... Everybody dresses different and in a specific way according to a region. And you can just you, – you grok a lot of what's going on there just by looking at how the people The necessary dress. exposition for that world is two or three sentences at the beginning at of the show. At the very beginning of the show. And like you can start watching Avatar pretty late in the series and still get what's happening. Yes. And it's very clear that it's not traditional medieval fantasy. That's the just uh, – so there are lots of little tricks like that that I think uh, you can pull to keep reminding people, no, you need to delve into it and ask to be able to, to get stuff. Well, let's let's take this back to a table perspective. Like for mm-hmm. obviously, you know, most players don't have access to art. Uh, well, to show but off. that's not true. I mean, uh, I used to just keep folders of things that I'd find on DeviantArt so that I could show players stuff. I mean, yes, that that, that is true. It's... So that can happen, but it's not going to match exactly what your vision is, like, especially if you have a very particular interesting vision. Absolutely. Uh, somebody that I look to uh, for this, who's a real inspiration to me as a designer, is Alan Turner, who did Edrigor. Mm-hmm. Edrigor is very different. Yes. It has a lot of the trappings uh, that we see as similar to the way role-playing games operate. I mean, there are so many people who have described it as the Native American D&D. It is not it's that. It's not that. And that is putting it in a box. Yeah. But there are familiar elements there in a world that is very different. He uh, used a very similar formula to letting the world slowly become bigger in the session that he ran for us. Right. Uh, you know, that's a that's a module that he has run to introduce people to that game hundreds of times over when when he demos it he does that scenario and similar scenarios he started us off in the village he gave us characters who had particular roles uh you know cat you were the water witch you were a water witch so like you you didn't have the healer component was that the other person in the party i think i was the healer wasn't i yeah you had you had healing magic so you were i was katara yeah he and he gave you that role and he's like these are your powers and this is what you mean to society and you were able to branch out from that like okay my society is actually very small and that's because travel is difficult why is travel difficult the world is very dangerous yes. uh, and we learned that very quickly the first thing that we saw of that danger was on a human level we went to uh, something that people depend on to stay safe and it had been wrecked by humans and we found out it was wrecked by humans because of the larger dangerous forces in the world but like we incrementally got introduced to elements of danger to the point where we were fighting a shiver that was like super huge and powerful by the end of it but he introduced 
introduced all of those elements very slowly. Like he's like, when you need to move, you ride the giant rabbits that you ride in this world. So it's like, okay, there are definitely beasts of burden that move people about, but they are giant rabbits and that hairs, I think, you know, uh, he had a name for them that I don't remember right now, but it was a good name. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was a giant rabbit that you ride on its back. And that told us a lot about the setting in a little bit. It's like, okay, we still move about on animals like in a medieval fantasy but it's definitely not because these are giant rabbits we're in a completely different world that we can't make those instant assumptions about anymore um sure so that that, that's so that was a way that he practically did it yeah so that's a practical introduction without seeing the art he didn't need to show us his book in order to introduce those elements but his book does have very different art that suits the setting very well right but he wouldn't be able to get that unless he had had people to do that for him well sure but that's not true of everybody lots of people are artists um which brings me to my next point that this is an imagination game that we mostly do by uh writing and talking to each other while sitting mm-hmm. around a table. That's how you, I traditionally think of role-playing games. Right. Um, but uh, there are so many other ways to bring – to make it a multimedia experience. If you can draw, man, can you ground your world in some stuff uh, just by having simple – a drawing of a mosaic that you're trying to describe is super effective when you're also describing it in all of the f- – fl- floral ways you normally would describe something um but uh i i can't draw um but something that i can do is write and i having made setting books before i find it really fun to write fiction of the setting um and it's the sort of thing where like some of your players might read that some of them might not and that is fine either way as a player who likes a lot of information if you write fanfic about your setting Mm -hmm. um Yes, I'm reading that. I'm reading that and I'm having a blast. Um, also, there are lots of different Wikipedia type uh, resources out there like Obsidian, Obsidian Portal, Portal. Yeah. Um, that are meant to be campaign wikis. Um, I find them useful for things like putting all of that background about a town, your wall of text, um, so that if people are interested in knowing more as the player, not necessarily the character, they have the resource and you don't have to give them everything. It's uh, a way for you, person who's thinking about all of this stuff, to get your ideas out and get them down and not feel like you're doing a bunch of useless prep because, hey, it exists now somewhere on the internet. Um, and it's... Per- a useful resource for your players that can uh, potentially build allies at your table for making the thing feel like a uh, a more foreign experience. Yeah. So that's kind of where I am with it. Uh, I agree that slow discovery is a, a good way to handle things, uh, giving giving exposition to your players' tastes, and then um, finding all of the subtle parts of world building that can be described that. Uh, are really evocative of what's different about your setting. It might be clothing. It could not be. It could be the language people use. You know, that's Mm -hmm. um, something that I love with Star Wars is that I I keep my players to using Star Wars curses instead of standard curses. They still get a lot of Star Wars lingo wrong, and that is fine. Uh, I don't care at all. It's all Slimo with me. Oh, that's gross. That's so wrong. the opposite but in using them uh it it keeps them 
that clearly keeps them more in their characters um, and leads to a lot more character-based humor and interaction. And that's fun for me um, and uh, makes it a richer world experience. So uh, if if not clothing, consider language, consider art, consider uh, the different ways people express musical interests and uh, their views on religion and all of these different parts of world building that creep into the common life of an individual yeah yeah and that that definitely creates a larger sense of the world um i mean for, for setting building especially like session one i think you want to introduce what is most important about your setting uh fairly quickly but do that through a simple and familiar format if you can write the avatar the last airbender's introduction to your setting do it that's awesome yeah i mean i am a huge proponent of pitching things to people uh whenever i tell somebody to talk to me about their game i always want it in three sentences or less start your set setting go three sentences or less what's the most important thing you need to know about my setting then we'll go from there uh so if you do that, if you reduce it to that essence of your setting, then design an adventure that sort of introduces that element to them first off and allow them to make assumptions about their characters. I think that's actually a huge thing that I, that I would like to point out for this world introduction thing. Uh, don't plan things out too much. Leave players some agency in there because if they can't contribute to their world, then you are banking on them fully buying into your world, right. which it could be setting yourself up for a disastrous disappointment. Sure. Um, so, you know, if you've got a thieves guild in your world, uh, you can generally shape a little bit of it. But if somebody wants to play a thief from that guild, the last thing you want to do is stop them and correct them every five minutes. Absolutely. You have to welcome them in and give them a part of it and be part of that collaboration because that's what these games are. And if you, you're you not writing a novel, you're writing a role-playing game. Nobody should feel wrong with the thing. They shouldn't feel that they're wrong in talking about themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not it's not a fun position to be to feel like you don't know something uh, that somebody else knows and to constantly have to stop and reevaluate. So I, I the, the other really important thing is, you know, let people explore and give them the power to explore. Cool. All righty. Uh, does that, are we doing anything else before we get into a random encounter? No, I think it's time for a random encounter. Cool. So time for a random encounter. It is time for a random encounter. And this week, the player who got their perception check was Jim McClure. Yeah, I was woken up apparently early, as this is most certainly not second watch, and I, I, I'm a little bit grumpy, but I'm awake. We're here. Hey, you're the one who got that improved perception <laughs> feed. Which, as a Shugenja, I don't know why. But I don't know why you do anything you do if you're playing Shugenja in make, the D20 system. I make odd characters. I make odd characters. And optimization has never been anything I've considered when making a character. So improve perception. Oh, believe me, Jim, we know. <laughs> yeah, so for some reason, your auditory perception is maxed out. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense to me. And uh, you don't wear armor, so it's no. not. it doesn't take him 40 rounds to come out and join us. Yeah, he, he just pops out of the tent. So I rolled up again in Ryutama because this game has been so much fun for world-building monsters and making giant assumptions around them. And this week, we are in Undead. Oh. Yeah, so our choices are a Kalakasa, a Skeleton, or a 
Foxophorus. What's a Foxophorus? Yes. <laughs> is that what we're going with? Well, oh, what yeah. is it? Oh, my God. I don't even have to hear any more than that. Yes. <laughs> a creature that had a heart full of envy in its dying moment may become a Foxophorus, a type of undead that resembles a huge purple flame in the shape of a fox. It is weak to water, but its flames will instantly explode back to full strength after being doused with water. The only way to extinguish it is with rain or water from a river. Special ability, Flames of Envy. When a character is hit by a Foxophorus's attack, if the character is in close combat, the character must make a blank, blank, blank check with the target number of blank. If the target fails, they must spend their next turn attacking a companion in the same area. This effect lasts until the character is attacked, has attacked their companion. Oh. I, I feel like this isn't fair because the, the the one random time that I happen to be on first watch, and once again we pick a creature that is setting up antagonistic behavior between me and James. <laughs> <laughs> like, how does that happen? You could always attack me. Yeah, but we just, history says we know yeah, history, how this is going. Yeah, we know where it's going. I also yeah. like that the only person who's going to be affected by the attack somebody thing is Jim. <laughs> that there's oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> He heard it first. I love that it's called a fox offerus because it's clearly a take on foxfire. But just what a what a beautiful name! Thank you, translators. <laughs> uh, I also like that it doesn't have anything to do with foxes. It just has to do with having envy in your heart. What was it in the shape? Well, it's uh, maybe it's foxphorus. Fox. A fox. P h o r o u s. Yeah, it's like phosphorus, yeah. but yeah. with a fox. Phosphorus. Mm-hmm. So that's how I should be pronouncing it. Envy. Fo- uh, envious phosphorus. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and uh, what I like about this is it's not a fox that died. It is anything that dies with envy, with in, envy its heart. In, its heart, in its heart. So first things first, structuring this as a random encounter is the GM. How tactically is this random encounter coming about? Where are we introducing this? Where are they likely to run into a fox for us? Sure. Are, now, are, are we talking about how if we were the GM, we would set that up? Yes. Okay. Um, cause the, the first thing that I thought of, if, if I'm going to go, if I want to have a lot of fun with my players with this is it's a giant ball of fire. Yep. So the first thought is always going to be the same thing. Let's try and douse it and extinguish it. Yep. For, as he, James, you're reading the description. I mean, first yeah. thing that I thought. Okay. Well, why don't we put it out? <laughs> right. Of course. That's what you're going to do, but it gives very specific. What is it? Rain or a river is rain the only- or a river, not a lake or an ocean. <laughs> right. So the logical thing is that's where you would encounter it, a lake or an ocean, to give a logical, here's how the players are going to handle it. And as soon as they try and handle it that way, everything goes bad for them. It's interesting. I think that's absolutely right. You need to make the challenge in defeating it. Like, if you want to make it sort of a questy thing, like putting this thing in an environment where – it's hard to tell what's going on at first. Like uh, I could see structuring an entire small arc about like a town that has a fox for us just running around making trouble for people because somebody died with envy in their hearts. I really like the idea of uh, a dragon happening, having to abandon its horde because it hasn't figured out how to deal with this adventurer Ooh. that it killed while it was they were trying to to steal from them. Maybe even several phosphoruses that mm-hmm. have over time accumulated. So you have high reward incentive. You have an abandoned horde to get to. It's just that whenever you're there, these fire things keep popping up and harassing you. Mm. 
because then we have we can set that anywhere we can set that near a river you know we can we can put um ways to deal with it uh in in the hands of the party they're just going to need to think their way through to that yeah and gi- giving them the ability as jim was saying earlier to be wrong at first to go to the ocean yeah. get some water and have that not work and and just to tie into what Kat was saying, I mean, the the other thought that I had with this from the storytelling aspect of it is I love in, – in my mind, I love the idea of this opponent as a late-stage encounter within a long campaign mm. because what I would have all of these things be were the villains that you killed in each story arc. I right. mean, it's, it's their, their, their leftover remnants, and that gives you wonderful context to these sort of – you know, amorphous balls of energy, as it were. I definitely, yeah, I, I definitely think what I would be doing for this is looking back to characters that had died previously. Man, there are so few groups that I've been in that have done this, but groups where somebody has played a PC and then gotten bored of that character and mm. then started a new character. Oh, funny. I would definitely look to bring one of those people back and be like, okay, now you have to fight your old character as a fox for us. Right. The, the the players see sort of images of them, you know, dancing in the flames every time that they look in it. I like it. I love how mundane the requirement is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, that's – what. Why is this world like this? Is there a necromancer who has put this curse over an entire country and then whenever, oh, but if you, like, did they just not like somebody who was envious in their life or did they feel a lot of envy? What What sparked whatever makes this happen uh that like someone at a newspaper press dies and uh then the whole place goes up in flames because that guy was always envious of the the lead story writer yeah i mean there's i i like the idea of fox versus becoming a problem because there's sort of a social plague of envy mm-hmm. like you know we live in a capitalist society it is driven by covetousness uh, yeah, I like that it wasn't jealousy. Jealousy is more, more extreme uh, and directed and personal, whereas envy is very general. Yeah, it's cool. So I'd say, I mean, I think we threw out a lot of good stuff. It's like, you, you know, there's the societal thing. There's bringing it to a personal level and making it somebody they know, whether that's somebody they defeated as an enemy or an ally they used to have or maybe just an NPC that everybody likes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot you can play with it there. But this is also like a good old-fashioned ghost story. This is something that the party can come upon, be troubled by, and then they can learn about this story. Somebody dying with envy in their heart, automatically, this random encounter monster has more agency than any other because the requirement for it being born is envy. Yeah. Um, Okay. So uh, if we look at our party, we've set up our tent somewhere. Uh why is this fox for us here? <laughs> we don't really know what they want. I, 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 no, that's the the coolest thing about this yeah. monster to me is that uh, the way you kill it has nothing to do with its story. So it's the best. For, I love ghost stories where you do what you think is going to appease the ghost. And no, it's a frigging ghost and it is mad forever. <laughs> yeah, so it this could be anywhere, you know? What what do we what do we think is interesting in trying to fight this thing? Well, so after we dealt with our eggplant problem, yeah, dealt last with it. Time eggplants are the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not going to be. You're a paladin. Heal him. 
I assume it's been left on primarily for the comedic value right. of it. Yes. I yeah. can't heal him until he chooses to be healed. He's going to become more eggplant than man, James. I, oh. I choose to, to spread the message of our Lord and Savior, Eggplant. Uh, mm, I'm definitely not allowed to heal him if he says stuff like that. I don't think I have an option but to say things like that right now. I would want to put this at an inn or a home that we are sleeping in. I want to put this creature in an environment where players feel that they're safe. Okay, so we're going like traditional ghost story. I that's I mean, I think that's what this is. Yeah, it's real that's heady cool. and great. Let's be in a hotel. And and it works really great if you're going with a traditional ghost story of the reason it's it's kept in the hotel is simply it's raining outside. It doesn't go outside because it will die. I love it. That's why it's not bound to the hotel, but to the PCs, it's going to appear as such. Oh, uh, cool. Boxing players into that environment, um, you know, and they like players will jump in if there's an adventure happening in their hotel. But oh, man, this is such a great time that is ripe for role play because the party's going to split. But it's not splitting in that like, oh, man, multiple sessions we're spending apart from each other. It's splitting within a confined environment so people can interact on a one-to-one while trying to solve this ghost mystery. Yep. 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 I'm into that. Uh, we're in a hotel. We have one to two rooms. I don't know what we can afford. I think that we're not it's a very... Two rooms. Always two rooms. Two rooms. So our watch was taking place in the hall. What were we doing? We were not on watch tonight. I mean, just because we're on first watch, nor like maybe we got a drink together. Like, yeah, after we're just the... we're just getting a nightcap, mm-hmm. and because uh, we're used to it, that's our sleeping pattern now uh, is watches. Yeah, and uh, Jim was asleep, and then light sensitivity. You noticed that there was like a kind of purple glow happening. Woke up, and oh my god, there was a fire thing. And Jim comes running out into the hall. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure. Am I Shaggy? Is that who I am in this group right now? <laughs> Zoinks. <laughs> Man, I don't know. <laughs> we will have to Scooby-Doo cast the One Shot Podcast Network at a later date because that, that conversation is too important to happen now. Yeah, it's fair. Real. Fair. One of us, because there are five of us, one of us gets to be Scoob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Cool, cool. All right. I like it. We come running up. What's it doing? Is it setting things on fire? What's it, you know? I, I think like pulling back as GMs, we got to figure out what this person was. Why did they die with envy in their heart? Why are they in a hotel? Okay. Because I am enamored with the idea of extended stays in hotels, which just does not happen anymore. Sure. Um, so it's like, so, oh God. So it could be, why were they in, ex- in an extended stay? This, typically there's a marital problem. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking that they were an author because that's what I think authors do is they take extended stays in hotels. We could do that. That's funny. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it was somebody who was in love with a member of the hotel staff. So they just kept mm. staying at that hotel so that they could be around that person. But of course, that person loved someone else. And there's our envy. And there's the envy. They died with envy in their heart. They died in that very room, never having realized the love that they sought their entire life. Because authors don't make practical decisions. Hmm. You know, it's scary to talk to people. Did you know that? <laughs> it's like, it's hard to talk to like people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So how do we start fighting it? Well, I think it's more how does it start fighting us? So, like it's got this appearance. Um, and, you know, how do we react? Do we believe Jim? <laughs> yes, of course we believe Jim. 
<laughs> what I, a jerk! Well, yeah. In his defense, I'm very eggplant right now. I'm at least forty percent. So he saw a purple light. This is more of his eggplant religion. Okay. That's a fair point. <laughs> we live in a world with ghosts. I'm going to go see. <laughs> so I open the door, and there's a flaming. Is it a fox shape, or does it look like it's, fox it's a fire? Fox shaped. It's a fox-shaped creature of purple fire. Okay. So So you open the door. And we take our immediate standard approach. Hey, buddy! Well, what the you don't even get to say that, because if I were the GM, it would hit you with its thing that makes you attack people as soon as you open that door. That's definitely true. Um, so the, the next part of the encounter is either Meg and Alex being awoken as Cat attacks them, or Cat turns around and attacks you or me or whomever happens to be with her. Well, it, it 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 sounds like that's what's happening, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you you open it. You just said if you're GM, you're hitting hitting cat. Cat's then attacking me. Yep. I understand enough that she's not responsible, and I'm gonna do you know the most logical thing. I'm a Shugenji, after all. Mm-hmm. Let's water spell this thing up. It's a big ball of fire. Yeah. And aside from ruining our deposit in our hotel room that we're about to do, this isn't going to go well. Oh, so much water damage. So So much. The mold in this place is going to be horrendous. And I think if I were GMing this scenario, I would have the water hit it. It would leave. Uh, You would think it would be disappeared. But obviously there's commotion that starts up in one of the next hotel rooms as someone else attacks somebody. So... There's there's a storm that is obviously too severe for us to simply leave this place. We have to deal with this now. Right. And it's a matter of breaking up and searching for it, trying to fight it, realizing that doesn't work, and then ultimately trying to get it out of the you hotel. You know, that, that is an interesting part of this encounter as, as you talk about that because – it seems like actually one of the best possible courses of action is actually to fight it alone. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you don't have the getting corrupt. I guess you're corrupted, but there's no but there's party nothing for to you to up. act on. Um, you know, so I, I love the concept of what you're talking about splitting up, searching room for room, and then we sort of hit our own individual challenges. Ah, uh, but solo Jim, against Jim, Jim, thing. Jim, if you're affected by that power, it doesn't wear off until you've hurt someone. Ooh. Yeah. So, like, we might even split up, fight it alone, think we're okay, and then, boom, you have to hurt someone now. Wow. And is, is it the first person that we see? Uh, I don't know. No, I think it's, it's a friend. Yeah. Have to be a friend. See. I like this monster. Oh, yeah. They must spend their ne- next turn attacking a companion. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would abstract that out. Like, obviously, it's meant for you to have that happen to you immediately in combat. But that's you, dumb. Yeah, you'd if you feel fail fine. that check, you carry that with you until you have to I attack think that's brilliant. Yeah, you feel fine. You've even maybe had a conversation with the ghost at this point. Oh, my years. God. It forces people in the party who don't like each other to have to work together. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because does, there's no reason to attack that person if you hate them. And then you grow to become companions The the, like... The big climactic scene is when they do attack each other. I know what Ava and Blue's thing is about now. (laughs) (laughs) The only thought I had is just me me and James each have our own individual encounters in the hotel room with us, and then we just pass each other in the hallway. Hey, sup? What's up? Keep walking. (laughs) Oh my god! Oh, what a cool monster! Yeah, and obviously, over the course of this adventure, we have to solve its mystery. Um, yeah, and it can't be it can't be lighting things on fire. That's not the problem. It's making people hurt each other because it's raining outside, and right. if it burns the place down, yep. it will be distinct. It, it, what's the word? Extinguished. There we go. Yeah. So 
That's a really cool random encounter. I feel like you could use that in any game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, um, we, and we already also talked about how you would defeat this monster and that's pairing up the people in your party who don't, don't work like work, each other. Yeah. Um, and going off to fight it, which now brings us to how do we make this monster better? Well, I mean, we, we discussed a, a couple things. I mean, w- one being, I, I do think the setting that you use this thing in, in and of itself has drastic changes to the monster's application. I mean, not yep. to say it doesn't go true for everything, but like what we were talking about, you know, sort of the, the way it's written in the book is you come across this thing wherever out in the wilderness, you fight it, and it's sort of a, a traditional charm monster if it turns you against the other person. Sure. You know, with the, the, the whole ghost hunting aspect of it, you know, in this environment, Environment, it really does change the entire dynamic and turns this one creature into essentially. I mean, I you could see this as an episode long uh, or a play session long, you know, combat session, right? Boss fight just because of the nature of the environment that it's in. Absolutely, absolutely. My way to make it better, I usually try to investigate things and like, well, imagine, well, what if this was a bigger problem? Uh, so moving back to my earlier plague of envy uh, situation. You have either a, you know, a wizard, sorcerer, or whatever, who is taking revenge on the world by spreading a plague of envy, and that's causing these monsters to prop up. Or if you're trying to make a statement about society, it's our society is geared towards causing envy within, within one another, and these monsters are becoming more and more of a problem because more people are dying with envy in their heart. And that's an entire campaign is built around that. And I would probably use one of the more anime-geared role-playing systems to do that because sure. you have to navigate to different places and resolve different people's envy right and i i think you could build a cool game around that absolutely if we're at the campaign level i also do like the idea of like since it's an undead it's so weird that this is happening why is this happening it could be the necromancer it could be something else it just Mm -hmm. feels like there's a much larger problem taking place and it doesn't feel like the since the answer to killing this thing has nothing to do with the person's motivations upon dying or their wants i don't think that the reason it exists has to has anything to do with the person itself you know it's serving some sort of larger purpose and basically any way that you can uh expand upon that is deeply interesting to me the other thing is uh how do we if we make an individual monster stronger more interesting um i i like that it makes you attack somebody that's Mm -hmm. cool but if it stays in an area long i also like the idea of People can become more envious in general, but the idea of it gaining influence, becoming a larger flame, having its own specific stories, envy problems, being something that infect people is something that I love. If everybody in that hotel starts falling in love with that one member of the hotel staff. Yeah. mm. I mean, it it should also cause you to want to steal things, too. Like, envy is pretty deep mind that you can go into uh and i think the ability that comes straight right out of the book is a great place to start but you can give this power this monster a bunch of cool powers as it grows and becomes a problem Mm -hmm. especially if you're in a campaign world where there are a lot of these things 
And if you, you, you know, tying into those exact same concepts you just talked about, if you want to, you know, mechanically incentivize that, uh, what you can do is you can make it so it cannot be extinguished until either you, you know, the circumstances that caused mm-hmm. it to become sure. it. Or if you wanted to, to make the geographical component, you could say you can only extinguish it in the location which it was created. Sure. And that gives you, you have to investigate its origin to get it back to its location to finally extinguish it. Yeah. The other thing I like about making this a larger problem, what if this is an ongoing problem? Like these things start happening. People don't really know why it happens. And it just becomes a part of the world where when you die, this is what happens to you. Right. People start building societies around rivers. Right. So you have this whole campaign world that is riverboats. Yeah. Riverboats. And because envy <laughs> is like a huge part of the setting, that means gambling, gambling. is rampant. Yep. It's just, oh, it's getting real cool now, Kat. <laughs> it's getting real cool. <laughs> no, I'm really into it. Fantastic monster. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, with that, it's time on a scale of one to ten. To where does the fox forest fall? For me, I think that this is the first that I'm getting really above five. I feel like this is a six or a seven. I like this mm-hmm. monster. Well, I guess I'm more generous than that. Like I, I'm really on board with everything because honestly, it's it it's one of these interesting categories of it's. It's got a lot of uniqueness to it, but yet it's very versatile, mm-hmm. you know, like what we talked about of you can use it as, you know, a, a ghost story. You know, you can use it as, you know, I keep thinking about it as an inverse shadow of Colossus of every time I, I kill one of my bads instead of me getting infected, all of a sudden infection goes out into the world type right. thing. You know, it's very versatile. I'm, I'm giving it an eight. I really cool. like it. I think I'm going to actually go six. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I say six, I think it does have a lot of versatility, but for me, that versatility exists within the context of games that you can put this in. I could see comfortably putting the Fox vs. Monster in almost any role-playing system. It would be a fun shadow run. It would be a fun World of Darkness situation because uh, ghosts are in both of those sure, things. Sure. It, it's fun in Ryotama. It would be fun in D&D. It would be fun in Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu. There are a lot of great places, but I think ultimately uh, the way that this monster is going to be used most of the time is in that single context ghost story Uh, somebody was envious of something for some reason and people now have to deal with inter-party conflict um well that's a cool story it's hard to tell that story over and over again unless you have really worked hard to work it into the campaign world and you get to our weird river society full of envy um (laughs) So I think unless you invest a lot of creativity in this monster, it's just really good at telling the one story that it tells, which is why I'd give it a six. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, with that. Meg! (laughs) I'm going back to sleep. (laughs) 